important passage in 1 John chapter 4, and we'll look at these six verses from the beginning of the chapter for a short time this evening. As we last time saw, the previous passage dealing with assurance or reassurance, we can see how that ends in verse 24 of the previous chapter with a reference to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit. As you can see, it's got a capital S. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so that's immediately introducing us to the Holy Spirit, which again features in the passage that we're going to look at this evening as we work our way through First John. So that our assurance of salvation involves very much centrally indeed the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people. It is through that, as we'll see in conjunction with the Word of God, that we come to be assured of our redemption, our relationship with God, our salvation in Christ, and so on. And that's what John is dealing with. But then you see he was facing false teachers, heretics, who also claimed to have the work of the Spirit and to have the Spirit in support of what they were teaching and saying. False teachers also claimed to be led by the Holy Spirit and that their teaching was of God and of the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, is what we face today because uh, what's spoken here is very true today as well. We saw something of this back in chapter 2, if you recall, uh, where we say, saw that uh, the spirit of Antichrist or many spirits have gone out, false prophets have gone out into the world and this is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So John is re-emphasizing that fact for them. That is indeed one of the main reasons that he's written this letter to those that he loves, those that he wants to actually protect from further inroads, from false teaching, taking them away from the truth of God. And that's what we face today as well, because as you well know yourselves, there are some who come to claim to speak from God and indeed go so far as to seek to control other people's lives with a word from us they claim from the Spirit of God, a word for healing or a word for signs or a word for miraculous works, a word to, to instruct people as to how they themselves should um, uh, look after their children or not look after their children, all sorts of very detailed ideas of how to bring up your children, how to get involved in uh, things such as uh, uh, the work of, of the gospel, but nevertheless not in keeping with the central foundational things of the Bible as we know them. Uh, so what do you do? How do you find out who's right and who's wrong? Who do you listen to? Who do you not listen to? Who do you believe and who do you not believe? How do you know who to trust when various teachings of that kind come to you and claim to be speaking for God and yet you have a suspicion because there are aspects of what they teach or how they behave that does not accord with what you know are important, foundational, central truths of the gospel? Well, John's answer is actually quite simple. Well, there are some uh, profound things about it is quite simple. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test them. Put them to the proof. Don't believe everything you hear, even if it's in the name of God. You have to actually test it out. doesn't matter who's saying it. 
It doesn't matter if it comes from this pulpit. It doesn't matter if it comes from outside. It doesn't matter if you come across it in something you read. It doesn't matter if it comes from the internet. Whatever it is that claims to speak for God and from God, you have to actually put it to the test. And as we'll see, the test involves Christ himself being central to that and the word of God being central to it as well. So that is his response. That is his advice. That's his counsel. Do not believe every spirit, every form of teaching, every claim to speak for God. But put them to the proof. Put them to the test. Whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what is he saying to us? Well, you can divide it tonight into two. It's a testing or a proving. Firstly, by the nature of the message that's being taught or conveyed. It's a testing uh, regarding the nature of the message or by the nature of the message. You can actually see whether it's false or whether it's from God or not by looking at the nature of the message itself and what it says and then fitting it or placing it alongside four square on or alongside the teaching of God's own word, the Bible. It's a, teach, a testing by the nature of the message. And secondly, it's also a testing by the nature of the audience. Because John moves from those who are speaking to those who are listening. He says that they are from the world, these heretics, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We, by that he means the apostles like himself, those that God established to set foundationally the New Testament church and the teaching uh, that you find now in their epistles. Uh, he says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So these are the two strands of his teaching in this passage. Firstly, there's a testing of the spirits by the nature of the message taught. And there's a testing by the nature of the audience and who people listen to, including ourselves. Uh, this is what he's saying. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test, prove the spirits. Put them to the proof to see whether they are from God. And in the text that you find here in the original text of the New Testament, this is a, a very strong imperative. John is not mincing his words. He's regarding this as something far too serious to be trifling with. He is uh, setting it out by way of a very strong imperative. Don't believe every spirit, but do test the spirits, whether they are from God. And as part of our calling as ministers of the gospel, to actually set before those that we preach to, that this is a necessary exercise, an ongoing exercise. We can't be elusive about these things. We can't actually deal with them as if they're just sideline issues. Because for John, it's very much to do with the relationship to God and to his truth, and the genuineness of our standing and of our witness and of our Christian experience. And this is what he's saying. The reason for this, he's saying that they have to not believe every spirit, but rather test them, is for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And that's uh, taking you back to chapter 2. You recall verses 8 there to 19. Um, where uh, you find him dealing with the same kind of thing there, where you find uh, the world also mentioned and those who've gone out from them. They went out from us. Chapter 2, uh, verses 18, from, from there onwards. Uh, the, you have heard that the Antichrist is, come, that Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
They went out from the church. They sought to draw, to draw people into their form of teaching. They tried to take over from the inside. And we saw at that time how um, the greatest danger to the church is not what's out there. It's what's in here. It's what happens from within. It's when uh, people actually bring out a species of teaching or of what, uh, what purports to be the gospel that actually isn't the gospel at all. Well, he says, this is what we're facing. And he says, now you have to test the spirits whether they are of God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And you notice it is an issue ultimately of origin. It's an issue of origin ultimately because either the teaching, he says, is of or from God or as in the case of these heretics, it is the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of that which is anti-Christ, anti-gospel, anti-what God has revealed. And these are the two sources I know there can be quite a lot of um, overlap or interaction perhaps. It doesn't mean that everybody who says something that's not in accord with uh, the gospel is actually a heretic out and out. But these people certainly were because they were denying some of the cardinal doctrines and as we'll see especially denying things that are absolutely crucial to understand and accept and follow about Jesus himself. This is a perennial exercise for you and for me as well. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits whether they are of God. And if I can say this to the young folks or those who are newly converted or seeking to follow the Lord uh, after a short time, maybe you've not yet gained much experience in the kind of uh, teachings that you come across in reading or in going onto the internet or listening to people, whatever. Uh, we have a duty as those who are more mature in the faith uh, to give you the right guidance. And you have the privilege to of being with older Christians. You know, it's not really nowadays as much done, sadly, but it should be that younger Christians and younger people meet with those more experienced on a regular basis. That's where so much was given out from those who are well on in the Christian way to actually advise, to defend the gospel, to protect younger ones from these in the spirits, from these false teachings. And that's something that we should seek to recapture, surely. Be with older Christians, you young ones, you inexperienced ones. Be with them as much as you can. It's important we look after our young people as well, our children, our Sunday school children, our, our younger ones even than that, because they have access to the Internet, they have access to phones, they have access to all sorts of information that we didn't have in our young days, and that makes them vulnerable. makes them vulnerable to the teachings of Antichrist. It makes them vulnerable to false teaching, to heresy. And you know that it is the mind of Antichrist, the mind of the spirit of the world, to draw people away from the gospel, to draw people away from Christ and from a proper understanding of what salvation is. Not far into our studies in First John, I came across adverts for meetings that are taking place in the Kala Inn, which uh, really are uh, supposedly a re-expression or a re uh, a rediscovery of the gospel or of the truth of God and yet denying some basic Christian doctrine such as the doctrine of the Trinity. Don't believe every spirit, however glossy it seems, however persuasive it seems, put it to the test. And let's look after our young people and our young Christians especially and that's why we're so grateful for the quality that we have in this congregation of youth leaders uh, and uh, of those who are in charge of instructing and looking after our young. Now they themselves have to actually beware 
and that they don't believe every spirit. They have a great responsibility looking after their young folks, that they themselves understand where um, false teaching um, comes into contact with their lives, and they're able to discern that. We have to keep on praying for a spirit of discernment, a spirit of recognition of what is and isn't from God, what is and is not true to the gospel and in keeping with what God has given us. I know that may sound very negative, but remember, the Bible has many negatives as well as positives. And this is a negative. Do not believe every spirit. And there's the positive corresponding, but test the spirits. Put them to the test. So what's the core issue? And how do we come to test the spirits, the teachings, the claims that you come across? Well, the core issue, as you can see in verses 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That's the core issue. It's their view of Jesus. It's their opinion about Jesus. It's their presentation of Jesus and who he is and what he has done or not done or who he is not and what he is. That's the core issue as it very often is. And you notice that that is what he brings out especially that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's from God. Now incidentally, and I'm not just saying this in passing because it's not important, it's something that fits alongside of this that you have to remember as well. And this is something that Jesus himself taught the disciples. Wherever you find a teaching where Jesus is kept in the background and where the likes of the Holy Spirit is presented as that which is in the forefront, be at least suspicious of it. Because the Holy Spirit does not present himself. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to present Jesus. That's what Jesus himself taught. If you um, just cast your mind back to what he taught, what, what, God, uh, uh, what Jesus himself taught in, in uh, John 16, in the Gospel of John, this, remember, is what he said when he said about the Holy Spirit that he would actually come and that he would take uh, the things that were Christ's and show them unto you. He will glorify me for he will take off my things and show them unto you. That is what Jesus himself actually said. He will glorify me. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is the pattern that God himself has established Though the Spirit is fully God, it is his ministry and it's by his authority that we come to have Jesus presented to us. And that's why Jesus is at the forefront of the gospel. That's why he is crucial in our understanding of who he is and what he has done. That's what the Spirit presents to us. Not himself, but Christ. That's in passing, but it's important. But you notice in verse 2 what he's saying here. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now we could, uh, uh, we could change the words around a wee bit and it's still true to the original text uh, because um, 
uh, probably better translated something like that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. You see, the question was about Jesus of Nazareth, this human being. How is he in relation to God? Who is he in himself? Is he God? Is he just a mere man? Or some of the heretics taught, if we follow what developed from this after the time of the apostles, that Jesus wasn't even real in terms of his humanity, that he only seemed to be real, and that he just appeared to be a human being. Or others think that the divine spirit and the way they thought about it came upon this real human being, Jesus, for his ministry on earth, and then just departed from him before he died on the cross. And you see how that affects so much, if not all, of your understanding of salvation. If you get the person of Jesus wrong, it's going to have an impact on so much else. Because he is, if he is not God, then your doctrine of the, of the Trinity collapses. And our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. It involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons of the Godhead. And if Jesus is not fully human then how do you understand his death? How do you understand what happened on the cross? How do you understand his resurrection from the dead, physically from the grave? See, this is what he's saying. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised deliverer that was promised in the days of the Old Testament. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus who's spoken about in the Gospels. The Jesus who was born of a woman in this world, who was raised as an infant, who came in his human nature to be dependent on his mother, who came, as we read in Luke, having been found in the temple teaching the doctors of the law, he then went back and was obedient to Mary and Joseph, his parents. Jesus is the Christ of God. Jesus is that Christ that was promised, that anointed one, come in the flesh, real, full humanity, sinless in himself, nevertheless a complete human being. Well, as the Catechism puts it, a true body and a reasonable soul, a rational soul, Everything that you need to have the, the proper full definition of what it is to be human, that's Jesus. You don't need to include sin for your definition of what it is to be human, to be complete. He is fully human. He is fully God. He is the God-man. This is what he's saying. And it's such an important aspect of what he's setting before those that he's writing to. It's crucial, he's saying, what you believe about Jesus your relation to Jesus and to God through him affects everything else. That is the test, you see. The test for me as a preacher of the gospel, the test that you must put me to as a preacher of the gospel, I don't say that in any other way, but uh, in a way that is seeking to be true to Scripture itself. The test is not so much, or not only, what I actually put into the content of my preaching, or anyone who's preaching the gospel, not just me. That, of course, is part of the test. But I could preach all year about the death of Christ and say nothing about his resurrection, and that would not be true to the gospel. 
There's not so much, uh, he's, he's not just saying it's important uh, what preachers of the gospel put into their message. It's also important that people who are listening examine what they leave out. And if we leave out consistently core truths of the gospel, we're not being true to God. We're not being true to the gospel itself. It has to be a balanced presentation of the truth, which is what we're seeking always to try to do, though very often I'm sure we fail. However, this is what he's saying. The test isn't very much about Jesus. And the teaching that compromises that, he's saying, is not from God. You take it that uh, the teaching uh, that you come across says that, well, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead bodily, That's just a spiritual conclusion that the disciples came to, having heard his teaching, and they worked that into what they presented as the gospel. That is not from God. Because Paul is adamant, and John is adamant, that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. God incarnate. God become human, while still God. And how often we come across this in preaching Um, in our study of God's word this question who is Jesus who is he it's there all through the Bible it's there in the gospel of Luke especially when you read Luke's gospel periodically you come to this question it's sometimes on the lips of the disciples it's sometimes on the lips of those who find fault with him who is this man who is he what is he about what is his life about What is this person about? Why was he in the world? What did he do in the world? And how uh, do you understand who he is from what he did? Well, who is he tonight for yourself? That's the great question too, isn't it? Uh, Because you and I have to bring this down to a very personal level. Who is Jesus in your life? What have you made of him thus far? How does your life relate to him? Do you believe everything in the Bible about him and still do not know him as your friend, as your Savior, as your Lord and God? Who is he? Who is he for you? Who is he for me? Not just the Jesus mentioned in the gospel back in history, but the Jesus who is now at God's right hand, this person, this whole person, this God-man. Who is he? Who is he to you? What does he mean to you? What is your life about if you're living without this personal relationship to him? And of course, if you have him, you want to know more of him. You want to be more with him. You want to find out more about him, his person, his work. That's why the Bible is so precious to you, why the preaching of the gospel is precious to you, why we love to be involved in preaching the gospel, because central to it is this great figure, this person, of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. So that's the first thing. It's a testing by the nature of the message. But he goes on that it's a testing too by the nature of the audience. And somewhat more briefly, well, he's saying here uh, to those that he's writing to, little children, you are from God, in verse 4, and you have overcome them, that's the heretics, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They, that's the false teachers, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world, and remember in John's writings, gospel and epistles, the world means that community of human beings as they oppose God. 
as they resist God, as they deny the claims of God. So this is what he's saying. The world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. What he's doing is carrying on with reassuring those that he's writing to that they are indeed children of God, as he said at the beginning of chapter 3. And now he's saying, you are from God and have overcome them. See, the nature of those who listen to the gospel and appreciate and receive the gospel and live by the gospel, that itself is an indication of who they are and what kind of spirit they're listening to. And what does he mean by saying um, that they have overcome them, they have overcome the heretics? For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What it means that they haven't been taken in by this false teaching. They have risen above this false teaching. They have dismissed this false teaching and not capitulated to it. They have not given themselves over to it. You have overcome them, he's saying. And uh, uh, that takes us really to, uh, the, to the phrase there, he, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now that's what we find earlier in chapter 2 as well, isn't it? The anointing that's mentioned there that uh, God has given to his people. Uh, that anointing, chapter 2 and verse 20, where Jesus is saying, you have been anointed or have anointing by the Holy One and you, have, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. And all the way through there, he goes on similarly to what you find here in our passage this evening. And when he comes to verse 27, he's saying, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, so abide in him. Now what he's saying by that, as we saw, is that that, that anointing is equated with the possession of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming to indwell God's people, that anointing from God, who is the person of the Holy Spirit himself. It's not that God gives his people, as some false teaching says, he gives his people the Holy Spirit, and then somewhat after that, maybe years after that, you have the anointing by which you're raised to a certain level then, that you're able to understand more about false teaching, and you're then in a position to overcome no, he's given you the Holy Spirit and when he gives you the Holy Spirit that anointing is your great teacher. And when he says you have no need that anyone else teaches you he's not dismissing the teaching of the gospel obviously because John himself was a teacher of the gospel and he's teaching them by this epistle. But what he's saying is you have within you you have upon you you have from God this great anointing for greater is he that is in you and he who is in the world. The world doesn't have that. However powerful that world is, however powerful and persuasive the heretics have, one thing they lack that you, God's people, have is the Holy Spirit within you. And that's really such a crucial distinction. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And that brings us to conclude this, that in defending his people against uh, John, in defending these people against heretics, 
in counselling them and giving them something of a defence, but also how they can overcome and have already overcome the false teaching. He's setting before them, and he's setting before us here in this passage that we always look to two things that are always there for us and always foundational for us with regard to overcoming false teaching and not being drawn aside into heresy or departure from the ways of the Lord. What are they? There is firstly this objective standard of doctrine. This objective standard of doctrine and secondly accompanying that you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. What I mean by the objective standard of doctrine is the doctrines of the faith itself as they're, as they're grounded in Scripture, the doctrines that arise from the written Word of God, these foundational doctrines such as the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the atonement, uh, how we come to be made right with God, our justification, our sanctification, whatever is foundational to our salvation or very much an integral part of our salvation, the structure of salvation, these are our objective standard doctrines. That's why John is taking his readers and listeners back to that. The standard, the objective truth of God in Christ. Not human opinion. Not the various ideas that you find floating from generation to generation. Not the kind of things that human wisdom comes up with. Not things that seem persuasive just because men of ability or women of ability are propagating them. They're already revealed. They're already here in the scriptures. This objective standard of doctrine. And that's accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit within you, as all God's people have, when you have that along with the objective truth that God has given us in the gospel, that's your defense and that's your overcoming. That's what you depend upon. That's what you look to. That's what you go back to. That's what's foundational in your Christian experience and in your ongoing experience. There's a wonderful definition in the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith in the first chapter, which very tellingly begins with the doctrine of Scripture. Um, where it tells us that there are so many things in the testimony of the church and in the qualities of Scripture itself by which it gives abundant evidence that this indeed is the Word of God. But our full persuasion of the divine truth and authority of this Word is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. See how beautifully that's put? It's not just the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's not simply the word of God in our hearts. It's the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word. In other words, when you are persuaded of the truth of the Bible as to what it is and the truth of its teachings and then the truth of all the things that you understand in terms of how you come to be saved, what salvation is about, all of these things. The Holy Spirit persuades you, but he doesn't do it without the truth of the, of the gospel, the truth of God. Nor is it the truth of God without the Holy Spirit. By this, he says, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
You see, friends, truth never becomes untruth. Truth never becomes untruth because it is always from God. And whatever distortions you might find of the truth, whatever um, claims there be to things other than the gospel to be the truth of God, it still remains the truth of God. However much it's denied, however much attempts are made to change it or to restate it or to reform it in terms of its core elements, the truth remains the truth. It never becomes untruth. And correspondingly, or in the other way, you can say the same about what is false. What is false never becomes true, however hard heretics try to convince us. What is false will never become true. What is true, what is truth will never become untruth. Friends, the spirit of Antichrist is at large. It's part of our responsibility to point it out in preaching the gospel. It's something that we're required under God to do. We're only following what God himself has set out for us in the likes of this passage. That spirit of Antichrist is at large. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. You hold to the truth of God as you have it in your Bibles. As you have it wherever you have it faithfully proclaimed and adhered to. And finally, make sure of this. That it is the Holy Spirit that you have within you. And not the spirit of error or untruth. Make sure that the Holy Spirit inhabits your soul. How do you do that? You accept Christ. And as you accept Christ, everything comes with him. This Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the Christ of God. Let's pray. Lord our God and our Father in heaven, we give thanks again for the truth as you have revealed it to us. And we give thanks that in your word we find our consolation and our comfort against all the error that we see around us and sometimes arising from within our own souls. Lord, guard our minds, we pray, as we interact with your truth. Help us to be faithful in conveying it by word or witness. And enable us at all times to look to these foundational matters of your spirit and your word. Help us, Lord, to remember that when the Lord Jesus Christ himself lived in this life, in this world, he said so often, thus it is written, and depended upon this written word for himself. Lord, we pray that when it was so much uh, his walk to do so, that it may also be ours too. Grant us your blessing then, we pray, and protect us and shield us from all that seeks to take us away from your truth and from yourself. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's conclude our worship this evening, singing in Psalm 119. That's on page 168. We're singing this time to Chun Warrington. We're singing from verse 161, that section down as far as 168. Psalm 119 from verse 161. Though rulers hound me without cause, 
My heart fears nothing but your word, for in your promise I rejoice like one who finds great spoil, O Lord. Psalm 119, verses 161 on page 167. The rulers count me without cause. My heart fears nothing but your word. For in your promise I rejoice like one who finds grace. and for those who have prepared it. We pray that you'd bless us in our time of fellowship. We ask that you'd bless Alistair as he comes to speak to us about the work that he's been involved in in camps in Hungary. Lord, give us, we pray, continued interest in your work, whatever it is in the world. And grant that your grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be our portion now and evermore. Amen. Amen.